Welcome to the Power Mom Minute. I'm your host, Stephanie Uchima Carney, and I'm a modern day business mama who believes you can have it all. This podcast is all about going behind the scenes of the lives and businesses of successful moms in business in order to uncover the daily rituals, life lessons, real life tactics, and favorite tools that you as a mom can use to apply to your daily life and business. It is my mission to educate, empower, and inspire moms like yourself to build your dream business while having the freedom and flexibility to enjoy life to the fullest. Power Moms, it's time to rule the world. Now let's get started. Welcome to the Power Mom Minute podcast. This is the second installment of the Pregnancy and Parenting in a Pandemic series that was part of a Facebook Live series I did back in April. The goal of this series was to help parents navigate all things during the pandemic. Over two weeks, I interviewed 17 experts covering different topics, ranging from fertility to mindfulness to health and fitness to working from home, productivity, and more. These experts share tangible tools, tactics, and strategies to help you survive as a parent, not just now during the pandemic, but in the future while you navigate parenthood. As a special five-week series on the podcast, I'll be sharing five of those episodes that had incredible insights into ways to navigate parenthood moving forward. I hope you enjoy it. If you like to watch or listen to any of these 17 expert interviews, you can go to parentingpandemicseries.com and sign up for free access. Today, I am super excited to bring to you an episode I did with Jory Rose. Jory is a licensed marriage and family therapist, mindfulness and meditation teacher, coach, author, speaker, and mom to two teenage girls. This episode was jam-packed with some of the most useful information on how to be a mindful parent and how to be mindful in relationships. I love her definition on what mindfulness is all about. She talks about how mindfulness is about living with greater awareness, greater attention, and greater intention. It's all about responding and not reacting to situations. I really like this because in life, I feel like we're always reacting to everything going on around us, especially right now, which led to so much anxiety, heightened emotions, and non-logical thinking. But when we're aware of what's going on, we're able to explain situations in a more logical manner. In this episode, she teaches how to practice mindfulness in parenting and relationships in order to rewire our brain for long-term success. She talks about breathing techniques and different ways to understand how the brain works and how it reacts to emotion, to different methods on how we can apply mindfulness to everyday situations, and also how to have self-compassion. Jory unpacks a ton of great tips and advice on mindfulness that you can apply to your life today. For Jory, mindful parenting made her a better mother and have a better relationship with her children. And I hope that you guys can all take some of these lessons and implement them in your life, as I hope that I can take some of these to just help with my parenting and my relationships. So sit back, enjoy, and Again, if you're interested in hearing any of the other experts, feel free to go to parentingpandemicseries.com and you can gain access to all 17 expert interviews. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to Pregnancy and Parenting in a Pandemic. Today, I am excited to bring on the show Jory Rose. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, mindfulness and meditation teacher, coach, author, speaker. I mean, she does it all. And she's here today to talk to us a little bit more about mindful parenting, relationships, and just how we can manage that all right now. So welcome. Thank you, Stephanie, so much for having me on. 
it's definitely a pleasure to be here and connect with you and just share with whoever is listening some really important tools that I know we all need right now. Exactly. So I wanted you to give a little bit of background about kind of what you do, who you are, and yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, To add on to what you said, a licensed marriage family therapist. So when the world is open, I have a private (laughs) practice (laughs) um, in which I mostly work with women. And the women I work with are generally at some stage of frustration in their life, whether it's regarding their identity of self and not knowing who they are, outside their roles of wife and mother, which we tend to so easily get lost in, Um, whether it's some level of discontent or frustration in their parenting of feeling really ineffective or overwhelmed and not feeling like they know how to discipline effectively or communicate effectively with their kids. And so I do a lot of parenting work. And another one of my sweet spots is working with relationships. Uh, Relationships have always fascinated me and why some people work and why some people don't, and what are the actual tools to have a really successful relationship. So the majority of the practice I work with are women. I do work with couples and a few teenagers here and there, and some male clients as well. And at the root of what I do, mindfulness is my passion. I discovered mindfulness, or as I say, it discovered me. It kind of fell in my lap without me knowing what I was seeking, but I was definitely seeking a framework, a tool set, resources to figure out who I was and to get out of my head and into the present. Because I, like many of us, just lived my life on autopilot on what was next, what was next, what was next. And it worked until it didn't work anymore. And on top of it, Jory, you are also a mom of two and a mom of teenagers. <laughs> I am. I've got two daughters. Ari is 16 and a half and Cammie is 14. Well, before we dive into a little mindful parenting here, I want to know how are you surviving at home with teenagers because you're so used to having them in school and having them out during the day. How is that going? I have to say, I'm really, I'm probably going to say this many times. So I apologize in advance for sounding (laughs) redundant or even a little bit cheesy with it. But I have to say, I'm so grateful that I have had an established practice of mindfulness because it's prepared me. And, you know, as far as the parenting piece, my girls and I are super, super tight. I'm divorced. I have the majority of the custody of them. So they're with me like 80% of the time. And the three of us are really close. And so honestly, this has been a gift of time for the three of us. We have a rhythm that we've got going. They are really self-sufficient in their online schooling. They're both working on different projects outside of school that are keeping them busy. So I'm really grateful for all of our health and the health of our family and grateful that, again, we've got some resources to draw upon when it starts to feel a little overwhelming or cabin feverish or, you know, just that general frustration and anxiety that's so easy for us all to have. And how are you managing too with, um, you said it's an 80-20, so with just the feeling of, okay, they have to leave the house, like we're under quarantine, like how is that going with like custody and just that situation? There's been a whole other layer of it all. And uh, on some level, you just have to trust even, you know, it's no matter when they leave the house, right? I can only control what happens in my home. So even when it comes to co-parenting and, you know, having to share that custody, if I were to worry about what happens outside of my home, I'd always be anxious and I can't control that. So it's not something I choose to dwell my energy on. That being said, their dad is at home. He's not going into the office. He's doing his minimal, you know, grocery shopping. He's not going out and seeing friends. 
so I, I kind of feel like, you know, we're all doing our part to to do the shelter in place aside from the necessary needs. And so I, I feel pretty okay with it. I feel like they have a good sense. I know the other night he was like, oh, let's go get this takeout. And they're like, but dad, what about shelter in place? And what about, you know, and so they were reminding him, he's like, oh, okay, let's make up a sweet potato. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. They're really, really good kids. They're really mature. They're really aware. So quarantine or not, I really trust them. And we have the kind of relationship where even not in my home, I'm still the primary parent. And so they have trust in what I say and what, you know, kind of the decisions that we make together. So it, it's, it's awkward. It's a weird time for sure. Yeah. I mean, how can it not be right? Exactly. You mentioned something about um, how mindfulness really like is the practice that kind of made prepared you for this. What sort of aspects did it prepare you for? Or when you say that, kind of expand on it. Yeah. You know, to me, mindfulness is all about responding and not reacting. It's about recognizing that you can't control what arises, but you can control what you do with it. So, you know, perfect example, um, this morning I woke up to realize my fridge isn't working and you know, it could have, yeah, I mean, of course I was bummed out and frustrated, but I then took action and have someone who is out here repairing it, but to get angry, to get annoyed, to, you know, express that frustration on the people in my home, it's not going to solve it. So to be able to just pause and take a few deep breaths and be like, okay, so this is what's here right now. Of course, I don't like it, but I don't have to have it take over. I don't have to have it ruin my whole day. I can just accept what is and accepting it doesn't mean I have to like it. Accepting it just means I'm not fighting. It. And, you know, it's not trying to change the situation. So whether it's something as little or as big as our refrigerator not working, or as a quarantine during a pandemic. You know, I'm seeing a lot of people who, and this isn't to any judgment, there's people who are all experiencing a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty and not knowing. And, you know, mindfulness has taught me how to really not worry about what's happening next. Well, let's go into that a little bit, just mindfulness in general, and then mindful like parenting. But there is so much anxiety. There's so much, um, I mean, even having your kids at home is a change in routine and schedule. And besides impacting them and their own routines and schedule, it's impacting like myself as a parent, everyone is feeling this. It's kind of this like unspoken elephant in the room. Um, how, how can we go about like using mindfulness practices or what can we do in order to kind of alleviate some of that? Yeah. I think one of the best ways to start answering that question is to give what, how I define mindfulness and I define it as living with greater awareness greater attention and greater intention. So to describe what I mean by that, greater awareness. So what does it mean to be aware? Well, to be aware of what's arising inside of you and then what's going on around you. So inside of you, you've got thoughts, you've got your emotions, you've got your sensations in your body and you then outside of your, you know, distractions and people and whatnot. And we tend to over attach to whatever thoughts are coming in. We tend to over-attach and over-identify with our emotions. We tend to dwell in the sensations in our body that we label as pain. And we let all of that take over. So to just simply be aware of it is to say, oh, well, look at that. Look at that thought I'm having. Look at that thought of, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen this summer. And that's a really valid thought. I mean, all thoughts are valid. But just because they're your thoughts doesn't mean you have to believe them. Doesn't mean you have to act on them. Doesn't mean you have to define them as your truth. So the more you're able to stay in awareness, you're creating distance and space between you, whatever is arising. And in that space, you get to choose your response. So the awareness is to then, you know, just notice what's coming up, 
the attention that I define as is noticing your typical habits, your patterns, your mindsets, your tendencies, your defining stories of how you over identify with, you know, how you define yourself and to then have intention to act on purpose. Because if the typical pattern is as soon as a thought comes in, you believe it. And as you believe it, you then recognize that that thought is bringing on anxiety and fear. And then when that happens, you feel this pit in your stomach and now you, you know, aren't able to be present and you're noticing you're, you know, lashing out in anger at people in your home. Whereas you can easily just be like, wow, I'm really overwhelmed. These thoughts are really, you know, bringing me a lot of anxiety. And let me just sit with that for a minute. It's like, how do you do that in the moment when you are all worked up? So the key is to practice outside of the moment. And I I used to teach mindfulness to kids in a school. And I did that for four years. And we would always start a mindfulness practice with a short breathing practice, which would really be a meditation. But being at a school, I couldn't call it meditation. So it was just simply mindful breathing, which is all meditation is, is with breathing with awareness. And I went into every classroom and I asked these kids, if you've been breathing from the moment you're born until the moment you die, why should we practice this? And this one little girl, she was brilliant. She was nine years old. And she said, I imagine we practice our breathing for the same reason we have a fire drill. She said, we have a fire drill so we know what to do in case of an emergency. And I imagine we practice our breathing so we know how to use it when we need it. I was like blown away. (laughs) I was wow. Tears because this little nine-year-old girl, she nailed it. Yeah. It's like, it's something that just comes innate to you, like breathing. Like you don't even think about like, why should I practice? Why would I ever need to know how to breathe? So you don't wait for the emergency to plan for the emergency. Yeah. Right. Because then we're just in constant reaction. Right. Reactions aren't going to be very skillful and they're likely not going to be in alignment with our intentions, which is that third piece of my definition of mindfulness is to live with intention, right? And intention for me is also not only knowing why you're doing what you're doing, but intention is being in alignment with your values. That if you stay values driven, you're likely to respond in a way that keeps you connected to your purpose, to the present, to, you know, again, keep you in alignment. And so one of the ways we can prepare for this is to look for moments in our day in which you can take a moment to just breathe. It can be 30 seconds. It does not have to be a long meditation like I was taught when I first started <laughs> as I didn't believe when, whenever my teachers would say you had to meditate for 40 minutes a day to have a valid practice. I'm like, um, that's yes, I don't have 40 minutes a day. Yeah. It might not be spent on a meditation cushion, just saying. <laughs> so I had to meet myself where I was at. And so when I teach this, I, I, I let people know. So a meditation practice is the foundation of a mindfulness practice. Meditation is the formal practice, whereas mindfulness is the informal. So by that, I mean, meditation is like going to the gym and doing some bicep curls. So that way you have the strength to go lift what you want, like maybe your child. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You work out so you can keep up with your children. So it's, it's that same meaning of, you know, we work out our mental health so we know how to be strong when we need it. So if you try to take a deep breath in the moment of the crisis for the first time, that breath is going to be hard to access. But if you practice it outside of that moment of frustration, you get muscle memory for being able to access it. And you also have the muscle memory of saying, oh, I know when I paused and took a few deep breaths, I felt better. And I also know that I was able to calm my brain, which is going to allow me to think clearer and communicate more clearly. 
And we get this experiential knowledge through that practice. I love that. Just strengthening those muscles and practice. Yeah. And, you know, I, like, I also like to teach people some parts about their brain. I'm not a brain science sort of person, but I do think there's some really important basics that if people really understood, it might help them stick to these tools a little bit easier. So you've got your emotional brain here and you've got your executive functioning here. Bottom line, there's a reciprocal relationship. When your emotional brain fires off, all of this shuts down. And here is our executive functioning where we've got logic, reason, rationality, decision-making, clear thinking, language, communication, learning and retaining information. So when your emotions take over, all of that doesn't work as well. And just so you guys as parents know, this part of the brain isn't fully formed until the mid-20s, which is why our kids can't always be logical and reasonable and rational and communicate clearly that part of the brain isn't as well developed. And you're always like, well, I don't understand. Why can't you like figure this out? Like, why is that? Like, why are you doing that? But that's good to acknowledge that and to know that. So as a parent, you understand. Exactly. And so even that knowledge is powerful, right? And so what that looks like in practice is that means if you're frustrated, you're going to say something you don't mean. It means if you're nervous, you're going to forget stuff. If you're stressed, you can't think straight. And so right now we collectively are kind of in this emotional brain takeover, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, we got to learn how to quiet down that emotional brain, which again is why I think mindfulness is the answer to everything. Because if we have the awareness, our emotional brain is taken over and then we can practice slowing down and taking a few deep breaths, it's going to calm down that brain. And then we can come back to our intention. But as parents, we got to role model that to our kids because we tend to not always remember that, but we expect our kids to do it. So I'm sure many of you guys as parents have the experience when your kid's acting out or they're having a temper tantrum. That's never fun for any of us. I'm like in the middle of all of that right now. All of it. <laughs> no judgment. But what I often see, and I used to be there myself because, you know, again, we're human. But what tends to happen is when the kids start acting out, our emotions get triggered and we tend to react. And when they're acting out, we tend to do things like yell at them, mm -hmm. scream at them to quiet down, which is ironic because we're yelling as we're asking them to be quiet. Or maybe we put them on a timeout or give them a consequence, which may temporarily pause that behavior, but it doesn't necessarily prevent it for future occurrences, which is to me the goal of parenting is to not just stop it now, but to teach them for it later. So I like to tell parents, you got to be the 911 operator. So imagine if you were having an emergency and you called 911 and let's just say your house is on fire. God forbid your house is on fire and you call 911 and you're screaming into the phone. Oh my God, my house is on fire. <laughs> Could you imagine if that 911 operator responded to you in the same or greater level of intensity in which you called. <laughs> you know, it would increase your anxiety. It would make you stressed out. It would like trigger you. Exactly. And yet when we yell at our kids, when they're acting out, that's what we're doing. Uh. And so that 911 operator has been trained to stay calm and you don't even have to see their face for them to calm you down by you simply being in their presence. So when I talk about mindful parenting, 
that's what I'm talking about is be the 911 operator. So when your kids are stressed, overwhelmed, anxious, acting out, having a tantrum, that emotional brain of theirs is taking over. You've got to have your ability to stay present and stay calm. On that note, too, I feel like with the analogy, one thing good about 911 operators, too, is that they then have you explain and talk through the situation. So it's like observing what's happening. So I guess it's like the awareness piece you're talking about, like explaining, not from an emotional, like, okay, what happened? What do you like, you know, where's there a problem? What's, what do you see? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? And so I feel like that brings like a child, like if you were to use that analogy on a child, it's like, okay, I, you know, what do you feel? What do you see? Like, I see that you're frustrated. Like what happened? Like kind of almost explaining the situation. Well, and I would call that just naming it. Okay. You know, because there's actual studies that show that when you name what's arising, that that calms down that emotional brain. So the two best ways to calm the brain are breathing and naming it. And to name it is to just say, wow, I'm really frustrated right now. It quiets that emotional alarm. And it allows you to have less reactivity to it. And so it's, it's a really powerful practice and it's so overly simple. So here's the key. If you were to ask the kid, why are you freaking out? Remember their logic and reason has been compromised. They may not know why. And the more we want to have a logical answer as to why did you just throw the toy at your sister? There is no logic because their logic has been hijacked by their emotions So it's important to remember there's always an emotion driving a behavior, always. So what questions should you ask them or how should you frame it? So that happens a lot now, I feel like in general, like parents are dealing with kids at home, heightened stuff, siblings that were normally in school are now no longer, so they're fighting more. Um, What do you say when your kid just randomly hits their sister or something and you're like, why did you do that? But... (laughs) And no reason, just because he, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I would temporarily pause on the negative behavior. You'll come back to it, but don't go there first. Because by going to the negative behavior first, you've missed the opportunity to connect with them empathically and compassionately. So it's my assertion that we all, and this goes for relationships too. So I'm going to say it in the terms of parenting, but it works with our partners as well. We all want to be seen, heard, and validated. And when we aren't seen, heard, and validated, we do one of two things. We shut down or we get louder. And so when we can recognize that I'm, quote, acting out because I'm not being seen, heard, and validated right now, that can give us some great insight. Now, here's the challenge with young kids. They don't have the self-awareness to be able to name that. Most adults don't have the self-awareness. That's true. And studies show that men, just so you guys know, men can name about seven emotions and women can name about 18. So even in our socialization, we are not raised to be able to name what we're experiencing. What we do know is we're experiencing an emotion. And so I always like to approach that child who's from the toy at the sister with curiosity and compassion. And if I come at it from a a mindset of curiosity where I'm asking questions and I have an inquiry, I can give the child the opportunity to get curious within themselves. So if I were to say, wow, Jimmy, it looks to me like you're really frustrated right now. I'm wondering if there's something going on that's making you feel frustrated. 
Now, what I tend to find is kids, and remember adults too, but I'll keep it with kids. <laughs> safer. Um, <laughs> kids, they tend to know what they're not feeling sometimes more than they know what they are feeling. So they'll be like, no, I'm not frustrated. Like, Yeah, that's the answer I get a lot. <laughs> okay, I'm wondering if we can be curious and, you know, like use words like let's investigate, let's be the detective, right? You can make it fun. I'm wondering if maybe you're hungry. No, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you're tired. You know, maybe you didn't sleep very well last night. Oh, I'm wondering if maybe you're jealous that Susie got more time with me this morning than you did. And maybe you're feeling like you need some extra mommy time. So you can kind of go through a series of curiosities and inquiries from a very compassionate place and I tend to find when you get close to getting, you know, X marks the spot, they either get quiet because maybe they now have some embarrassment or maybe even a little bit of shame or guilt for what they've done. But you can kind of see when, you know, you've kind of gotten a little bit closer to hitting the mark or they'll say, yeah, maybe that's it. And maybe they still have no idea why, in which case I will always default to, wow, sometimes emotions are so hard to manage, huh? Or sometimes I used to say to my kids, I simply would say, oh man, growing up is so hard, isn't it? And I just would leave it like that because now I'm validating their experience that they don't know what they feel. Right. So if they get to the root of the issue, I'm at least acknowledging, wow, sometimes our emotions are just so hard to hold in. We just don't know what to do with them. You know what? I get that way sometimes too. So that's one route to go because now by connecting with them, you've named it, you've given the emotion space to exist, you've observed it. So you've likely at this point calmed down the emotional brain and you can then say, okay, well, remember throwing toys is, you know, against our house rules. So we're going to have to figure out what to do about that. So that doesn't happen again, which I have a tip for. So I'll get back to that in a second. Cause like, can I have you in my pocket? Like at all times? I'm like, what do I do right here? <laughs> and you asked in the beginning, how are my kids and I doing? And we're doing amazing because when I started parenting this way, when they were much younger, the entire culture in my home has shifted. I, I'm not kidding. I have two teenagers and we never- And girls. Two girls. <laughs> we never, and I'm, I'm not like glorifying saying, you know, this is, I'm not, that's not, I'm not trying to brag about it. I'm just simply saying these tools work. I've got two teenage girls. We never argue. We never fight. There's never yelling. It hasn't happened in years and years and years and years because I parent from this place and I have for years. I didn't always do this. So one other thing I want to say is taking a deep breath will help calm the brain down. And as you guys as parents know, telling your kids to take a deep breath is going to be the last thing they're going to do. Because you'll either get the eye roll of, oh, mom, that's not going to work. Or you're always telling me to do that. And that's okay. if they do, and, and yet sometimes... When you're really worked up, accessing your breath is really hard. So they sometimes even they literally can't get to their breath because they're so overwhelmed. So this is a true story. Years ago, my kids were maybe seven and nine. And even when I was married, I, I did most of the parenting alone. My, my ex-husband worked late hours. So I always felt like it was just me, even when I was married. And I was trying to get them in the bath one night. And as you know, bedtime, bath time, chaotic hour of the day. Every and every excuse in the world why we can't do certain things, or suddenly they're hungry. And where I'm like, Mama's got a clock, yeah. I'm kind of done, like I'm tired. <laughs> so there was one night they wouldn't get in the bath, and I my frustration was really high, my patience was really low, and I started to raise my voice. 
but I had the awareness that I was starting to raise my voice and the awareness that that's what I was doing also gave me the awareness that just because I started doesn't mean I have to continue. And I paused and I observed what was going on within me. So I named it out loud so I could calm my own brain down, but also role model to them. And I said in this exact tone of voice, wow, you guys, I'm really beginning to feel frustrated. I'm feeling like my blood is starting to boil. And I I was about to yell at you guys. And I recognize if I continue to yell, I'm only going to feel more frustrated. It's not going to help the situation. It's going to make you guys feel frustrated. And we're still not going to be in the bath. So you know what? I need to take a minute just to calm myself down so I don't say something I don't mean. And I literally stopped and I closed my eyes and I just took like two breaths right in front of them, just like that. And the whole energy just shifted. Like, even like me and you right now, I can feel like yeah. energy shift. I was like, yeah. And I was then I took my deep breaths. I was like, okay, what do we need to do to get in the bath? Parenting from that place of my non-reactivity has taught them how to also respond in that same way. It's not always perfect, but it's always possible to go back to that as a practice. It's changed everything. And Sometimes it's easier than others to be able to access that, but it's always possible to be in the moment of awareness of what I have going on inside of me. Because you can control you, but you can't control others. It's so simple. But I can control what I do with what comes up. Right. So I can't control the frustration, but I can control how I respond to the frustration. And there's a way to respond to it skillfully, or there's a way to respond to it unskillfully. And the unskillful is going to be a pattern that's going to take me down a habit that's not going to serve my intention of seeing an alignment with my values. Wow. <laughs> Easier said than done. I know. Because yeah. like it makes so much sense, except for when you're in that moment and you're like, and that's when you have to, I guess, practice that muscle of the awareness, the, the okay, these, these things are coming up. Stephanie, kicking your awareness of what's going on and then... That I think that, that that for me is the difficult part is like when you're in it, you forget, you forget your tools. So it's the easiest thing to do and the hardest thing to remember to do, right? And the more you practice, the easier it becomes, right? So you're, you're basically, it's like learning anything new. And so here, I give this analogy. I've, I've got a lot of good analogies. <laughs> I love it. The 911 is one of my favorites. You know, the way that we rewire our brain for new habits and new patterns is by doing something different. Not by thinking about doing something different, but by actually doing something different. It's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, which is a fancy way of saying you got to do it for it to change. So I use the example of running a marathon. Now, I, I clearly know how to run. I hate running. I know how to do it, but I don't, I don't like it. Like I'd have one of those bumper stickers that says 0.0. 0. <laughs> I, I don't run. I don't either. Don't worry. <laughs> but... If I wanted to run a marathon, I would have to train my body to do something I naturally already know how to do, right? But if I sat here and I just thought about running, I wouldn't make my body trained for what I wanted it to do. Same thing with breathing. You've got to train your body to do what you want it to do. So if you want to know how to access the breath when you're frustrated, you've got to train yourself to practice the breathing when you're not frustrated. So you strengthen that muscle. So you're creating a pathway that's easier to access for when you are. So I've got, I've got a very, another good analogy, a good visual that I like. And people tell me that this one really sticks with them. This one and the 911. I'm going to always remember the 911. I think that's going to be my trigger when like they're yelling and I'm about to yell. I'm going to be like, okay, 911, what would you do? You're like channeling Jory. (laughs) Yes. Channeling Jory. 
imagine, so this is my visual for creating the new habit. So imagine a snowy field, okay? And there's only one path across the snow. And that snow, that pathway is so well established that like the embankments on each side are like 10 feet high. It's a really well established path. The problem is you don't like where it takes you. So you can get across the the snowy field, but you get to the other side and you're like, I don't want to be here, but it was the only way across. So when you approach that snowy field, you have a choice. I can go down the path where I don't like where it takes me, or I can consciously choose to start walking a new path. And at first that's going to be really hard because these are going to be footsteps in the snow. But every time I approach this, if I consciously choose, take these new footsteps, eventually I will create a new path which will become the obvious one to take because I like where it's taking me because that's my intention. And eventually, the more I do that, this one over here, it's going to get snowed over. So that's literally what's happening in our brain as we rewire new habits and patterns. So every time you sit down and take 30 seconds to breathe when you're not stressed out, but to just hold that muscle, it's like those footsteps in the snow. And, you know, so again, that reminder of that visual of I have a choice, I can go down the path, but I don't like where it's taking me, or I can choose to go down the other path that is going to serve me. And not only me, but my kids and my whole home environment. And I feel like for some people, they want the quick fix. And so that's why they think of like, oh, well, if I just put them in timeout or whatnot, but like they, they also have to make that conscious decision that this isn't going to be quick fixes. This is, this is going to take time to build that muscle. Like you're not going to wake up and run a marathon. And here's the problem with parenting. If you decide that maybe that timeout is the route to go, and I'm not saying it isn't. I just know it never worked for my kids for creating long-term change. Yes, it pauses the momentary behavior. And I really want to make sure that behavior gets adjusted for the future. So I'm not constantly dealing with this situation. Also, the hard part about parenting, I was going to say, is what worked yesterday may not work today and likely won't work tomorrow. So I always, instead of trying to chase the trial and error, and looking for the quick fix, I was more interested in how can I create long-term lasting change? And it's not going to happen overnight, but let me tell you, if you stick with that, it's going to work. And I have another tip. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So this one is totally revolutionary and it takes some parents by surprise because it feels counterintuitive, but let me tell you, it is brilliant (laughs) and it works. Okay. So I don't know about you guys, but when my kids were young and I, this was before everything I just explained to you and I would give them that consequence. It was as if I was battling this hierarchical battle of I'm the parent. You're going to listen to what I have to say. You're going to do as I say, and I'm going to win because you're in trouble and here's your consequence. I feel like that's something we say all the time. We're like, mommy and daddy make the rules. Like you're not the adult. We make the rules. <laughs> true. And <laughs> would be how effective is that in enforcing the, the consequence and creating positive future behavioral change, right? That's not really. <laughs> I learned I had to stop fighting that hierarchical battle that this wasn't about me getting my voice heard as the adult. This was about me teaching natural consequences of behavior. And one of the things that I used to want to teach my kids was you wouldn't act this way at school. You wouldn't act this way to your dance teacher. You wouldn't act this way to your Kumon teacher. You may not act this way with me. This isn't me being a mean mom right now. This is me teaching you what it's like to be part of the world. And in the world, there's natural consequences to certain behaviors. So that was one thing I would say. Another was I wanted them to always recognize that they were the ones in charge for how people saw them. 
that they are in charge of their own behavior. So I don't want to raise them to do as I say. I want to raise them to know what's the respectable way to act. And that was up to them, not me. So I would say to them, starting from a really young age, four or five years old, I would say, you are in charge with how people see you. So if you're invited over to Bobby's house, do you want Bobby's mom to say, yes, Jimmy's coming over. I love when Jimmy's over. I love how Bobby is when Jimmy's around. Or do you want that mom to be like, oh man, he's coming over. You get to decide how people, right? How Based on how you act. So I recognized that they couldn't just act on how I told them to, but I wanted them to develop the skill of understanding that their behavior has natural consequences that aren't going to be just about me. This was also coupled with a study I read when my kids were young about uh, peer pressure as teenagers. And let me tell you, when my kids were young, Stephanie, I used to be really afraid to have teenagers because I just thought like, They're going to be out there destroying my home and themselves and the world, and they weren't to be trusted. (laughs) It was scary to me. And I read this study that said one of the best ways to prevent peer pressure or to prevent succumbing to peer pressure as a teenager is to give kids choices when they're young. Because the reasons that they succumb to more peer pressure as adults, or I mean, as teenagers, is because they weren't given enough option to make choices on their own. And they were in the habit of doing what someone told them to do. Mm. But when they're young, if you give them options to make their own choices, they develop that muscle of their brain to think for themselves and make a good choice. So when they're offered something that maybe isn't the wisest choice, they've had practice in thinking for themselves versus just doing what someone tells them to do. It was like, it made so much sense to me. So one thing, and then I'll get back to what I was going to say in a second, but like, if you go tell your, your kid, go put on a jacket, they're gonna be like, no, I don't want to. If you were to say, Hey, do you want to put on your red sweater or your blue sweater? You've manipulated the options. They're making a choice. We all win. Exactly. Absolutely. If they say, I don't want to wear a sweater. Well, that's a natural consequence too. Then you're mm-hmm. going to be cold and then you'll learn. Right. But here was the really revolutionary thing that we did starting when my daughter was about five. And this was a, do- this was a child who I couldn't figure out anything that made a difference to change her behavior. Nothing I could take away, nothing I could do mattered. And that was frustrating to me because I didn't feel like I had any power and control. I didn't feel like I had any carrot I could like dangle over her that would like make her whip into shape. So recognizing that trial and error didn't work very well. So what we did, we started what we called the consequence book. And when she was little, we used to write it down for her because she was too young to do it herself. So if she did something wrong and there was, you know, there's got to be basic house rules. So the kid knows what rule they're breaking, right? Basic house rules. So one day my daughter, she used to do this all the time, lied about brushing her teeth. Kids do this. Why? Oh yeah. You know, but it's what, you know, they're just going to exert. They always pick something. My kid always like lies when he kind of pees in his pants. He's like, oh mommy, no, I just spilled water on it. I'm like, yeah. No, you, you definitely peed a little. No, I, I just spilled water or, oh, I was just sweating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they lie. They pick random things to lie about for power. Lying, right? So lying was one of our house rules. So when I recognized she lied about brushing her teeth, I had to go get the consequence book and we would write down three things. The first one was, what was it you did wrong? I lied about brushing my teeth. Okay. The second thing what could you have done different? Well, I could have either not lied about brushing my teeth or I could have brushed my teeth. So now we're realizing what are the options of my actions here? Now, here's the third and revolutionary part. 
parents have a really hard time with this, but I tell you it's brilliant. The third one is, okay, if you lie again, now we're in the concept of lying, not just teeth brushing. If you lie again, what is the consequence that you pick will happen if you lie again? And she would try to choose things silly, like I can't chew gum tomorrow. Okay, well, that's, you know, I have to approve it. It has to be like, you know, worthy of the cause. Can't be like reverse, because I feel like my son would be like, I can watch TV or like, I can't like. We've got to approve it, right? So it's got to, you know, we have to approve the consequence. And so, you know, maybe at this time when she was young, it was like, I get my eye touch taken away. Okay, write that down. Sure enough, she was going to lie again. So this time when she lied, everything shifted because I no longer was pissed because she didn't disobey me. And now I could have compassion and be on her side. So sure enough, when she lied again, I'd be like, oh man, really? Like I was rooting for you. Okay, well, go get the consequence. Let's go see what it says would happen that you decided if you were to lie again. And she'd and we'd read it. And she'd say, I'd get my eye touch taken away. And then like her face would fall and she'd get all sad. And I'd say, okay, so who got you in trouble here, me or you? This wasn't about inducing shame. It was about inspiring responsibility for your actions. And she said, I did, mommy. And can I just tell you, Stephanie, this shifted everything. This is genius. Genius. <laughs> and, you know, and the funny thing was my second daughter, we never had to have a consequence book because she could see what was going on with the older one, but it became a verbal agreement. But I had to continue to enforce whatever she had said. It wasn't about, you know, there's still the follow through because the, the biggest thing I see parents struggling with is lack of consistency and follow through in whatever they say. So you got to be willing to follow through with it. But the power dynamic shift that I no longer am angry, I am now having compassion of teaching this lesson that there's a natural consequence to your behavior. I no longer had to raise my voice again. And yet somehow I still had complete authority and control in the home. Wow. And it taught her also like accountability and staying true to your word and like so many lessons bundled in there. So where you go back to my earlier question about, you know, being at their dad's house co-parenting and I'm the primary parent. And, And I say that because they are them wherever they go. So it's not about you do what I say in my home. It's, you know what it means to a good person, you know, to be a good person, make good choices wherever you are, regardless if dad has different rules than I do. And because we've had this established practice, I trust your decision-making to know it doesn't matter where you go. It's not because you're doing what I say. It's because you're doing what you know is the right choice. Wow. (laughs) I'm going to have to start doing some of that. Our preschool has um, parenting classes that do a lot of the like making choices. And so some of this stuff I'm like, yes, like, Oh, you're telling me again, I really should do this because you know, this is also what they teach. But that last part I love because also it gives them the power. It gives them the power to choose their own consequence and, and they feel like they're in control. You're not telling them this is what you're going to get taken away. They get to pick that. And so Oh, I love it. But there's no better lesson. Otherwise, all they're doing is they're trying to figure out how to be sneaky and get past and defy you. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm no longer afraid of teenagers because they have no reason to defy me. Now, they also happen to be incredible girls. And I, did, I don't know if I just lucked out, but they're not typical teenagers in that sense. 
But what they do have is a great level of self-respect. And I got to believe it has come from this way that I've parented them. I, I don't know the percentage of equal parts nurture nature. They're inherently good kids, but they're both this way. They're very different in some ways, but they both have these qualities. And I think it's because that's the culture in the home I've created. And I've worked with clients who are doing the consequence book with their 23-year-old failure to launch child, right? Like yeah. you don't have to be five to start this, but you can at any point decide this pattern of how we're managing isn't working right now. Rather than try harder, it's try different. Because I see a lot of parents continue to try harder at the same thing. And it didn't work the first time. It's not going to work now. Right. And, you know, when I was little, my mom used to say, in order to gain control, you have to give it up. And I never understood that until I was a parent. And this is in a perfect example of I actually gave up control, but I, in fact, I gained it. <laughs> that was like, wow. <laughs> I like have no comments because I'm just like, okay, wow, mind blown. So how can you do this with your spouse? I'm just kidding. <laughs> But, but yeah, not there that you can, you know, as far as the relationship piece, you know, right now there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of irritability. So even to recognize, wow, you know, I'm really sorry, honey, I'm noticing I'm really short and impatient. And I think I'm just really anxious right now. Just to name it, you know, mm -hmm. let your partner know where you're coming from, or just, I don't even know what's going on with me, but I just feel off. So you can name that piece of it with them. I think with our partners, we have to be in the practice of asking for what we need rather than assume that our partner knows what we want. And so, you know, one of the things I talk with a lot of clients around is they get frustrated when, you know, let's say the wife is saying, expressing her emotions or needs to her partner, and he's just trying to solve the problem. And she's like, all you do is try to fix it. You never hear me, you know, and then it becomes this all or nothing kind of mindset and belief system. And so I, I really encourage people to, to be curious within yourself up front. What is it I need right now? And then have the courage to ask for it. So there's usually one of three things we want from our partners when we're dealing with our emotions or overwhelm. We either want to have help solving a problem. So maybe there is something to actually fix or like strategize. One is I just need you to listen. I just need you to hear me. Or three, can you just give me a hug? So if you can be able to name up front, you know, baby, I want to share with you what I'm feeling and here's what I really need in return. I just need you to listen right now. I don't need to try to solve it. I don't need a hug. I just need to get off my chest and you can do the same thing in return. So if your partner is coming at you, just like, you know, vomit of the mouth and like this whole dump of their day before responding with what you might normally say of, wow, I'm noticing you're really frustrated. Would you like me to help you solve a problem? Would you like me just to listen or do you want a hug? Like, you can offer that back and then someone can be like, I, I, I don't actually know what I need. Let me, let me figure that out. Right. So actually like that happened in our relationship where my husband's like, well, what do you need? And I actually had no idea. I was like, I don't know. I just want 30 minutes to myself because we have, you know, a newborn and I feel like all of this, but I, I what you need, you just needed some time to yourself. I guess. And he's like, well, we can make that happen. Like, when do you need it? What do you want? I was like, I don't know. Like too many questions. <laughs> I was like, but I just need nothingness around me. I just need, like, even if it was sitting in my car. Part of how I would respond to that, which is simply say, wow, Stephanie, you're really overwhelmed right now, huh? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. right? But that's validating your experience. Yeah. Just to, just to let that be okay without even knowing what you need to solve it. You just need to be heard that 
you know what you need. Like that in and of itself is acknowledgement that that's okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like all these emotions now, now I'm feeling emotions. I'm like, this is like online therapy now. Yeah, this is your free coaching session. I know, exactly. I'm like, wow. You know, I'm available. Yeah. You know, but but this is, you know, to me, this is mindfulness and practice because this is that basis of staying present, staying non-reactive, operating from curiosity and compassion, having awareness of what's arising, not judging. You know, the opposite of compassion is judgment. And we tend to react in judgment in ourselves or others. And like if you learn nothing else from all the stuff that I've talked about today, it would be take a minute and just breathe and come from a place of curiosity and compassion. If you did those two things 80% of the time, things would shift. I mean, we can't do this 100% of the time, right? Like sometimes we just have to be in it. And also when you are just in it, no, it's not permanent. It will pass, but it's possible. It's like, I always hold the space that, you know, that growth and change is possible to get you to where you want to be. You don't have to stick where you land, you know? And even I remember, you know, it's, it's so easy to get hooked into other people's emotions. And that's where we start getting reactive. Like I remember my daughter, she must've been in and she was starting to go through like, you'll see as your kids get older, you, have, you got at least one girl, right? Yes, I have two girls and they're the little ones. So so you'll start to notice that there's, you can start tracking their hormonal cycle years before they start their periods because that hormonal cycle is present and you can see their behavior change. <laughs> and I used to kind of like chart it like, okay, she's PMSing and it's still like three years away from her period. But before I was aware that it was happening, I remember there was one morning she just was losing it and I got so caught up in it and her bad morning, like I was all angry and reactive and triggered and it like made me have a bad day and I can't make this stuff up. So this is literally how it happened. The next day she had the same bad morning and I got hooked into it again and I was like, okay, wait a second. This is not a bad day. Like yesterday, this is now just a bad morning, right? Now I was able to kind of narrow it down and then Sure enough, the next day she had another, you know, hissy fit of something going on. And in that moment, I now had the awareness of, wait a second, this is her bad moment. It didn't have to be mine. And if I got hooked into her bad moment, then I wasn't present to help her through it. So it took me three days in a row of recognizing just because she's in it right now doesn't mean I have to be too. That I can give her the space to, you know, feel what she's feeling, let it be okay, hold a container around it to say, yeah, you know, I totally get it. Some days are like this. And the more able I was to get unhooked from her triggers, the less reactive, the more present I was. And I was like, okay, so she had a bad morning. Doesn't have to, that's not to say it doesn't affect my morning. Right. Keep it on as my own, as I did that first day. But then you're able to think through and how to help her versus just getting sucked into the drama. And I feel like that's wasn't yeah. taken over. I was able to stay calm. So I was able to get, you know, that executive functioning back to work. Wow. Well, thank you so much for all of this amazing information. Um, I wanted to close out with one final question, which you've kind of answered in different ways. Um, so it could be the same, but what is your number one survival tip for parents right now? Compassion. Give yourself as much compassion as you can. None of us have ever been in this situation before. None of us knew to prepare for this situation. None of us have had to um, not have any alone time like this. I mean, this is the reason we send our kids to school. (laughs) Take time to work. I didn't even even ask you about how work life is going. But, you know, I mean, 
have compassion and recognize that, you know, to some extent, everyone on the planet is going through the same thing. And there's three components of self-compassion that Kristen Neff, who's one of the, you know, world leading researchers on compassion, self-compassion, one of it is kindness. So just be kind to yourself. So be aware of the voice in your head because our inner critic tends to be really loud. And remember, I said the opposite of compassion is judgment. So that judgment voice tends to be there. So if we can have the awareness of, oh, look at that. My inner critic is really loud. Can I switch that to be a tone of kindness towards myself? So one is be kind to yourself. The second component of self-compassion is mindfulness. So how can I just be present? How can I allow and accept what's rising without trying to change it? Because the more I try to change it, the worse reaction I have to it and the bigger you know, my reaction to it will be. So just how can I be present and accept? And the third part is common humanity. And the common humanity means to say, you are unique, but your problems are not. You're not the only one going through this. So let it be known that nothing is wrong with you for struggling in the way that you are. So uh-huh. having self-compassion right now is in addition to breathing and having curiosity. But I said, you know, if you take a minute to just breathe and approach everything with curiosity and compassion, recognize also there's a beginning, middle and end to everything. And we will get through this. And I actually think this is the universe. And I don't say this in a cheesy way. Like I actually really believe this because I, I I believe in the woo-woo part. Um, <laughs> and this isn't to discount the real suffering that I know people are going through. So I don't want to over, you know, have this be the spiritual bypass of just, you know, the silver lining of all of this. Cause I know there's really deep suffering in the world. And, and even when you're in that suffering, even those people who are experiencing the illness and the, you know, the tragedy and the death and what's going on around them, again, you have a choice in how you respond to it. The, I, the feeling I have is this is the universe calling upon us to say, hey, guys, you know what? I'm going to shake up the world right now because something wasn't working in the way we were all living our lives. And if we can use this as an opportunity to get back to alignment with our values, to figure out how to get off that treadmill and how to figure out how can we live in a more connected, compassionate way, we're given this time for a reason. How are we using it? Oh, well, thank you, Jory, so much for being here and sharing all that. Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to like download and unpack all this and like all this, but thank you for taking the time. And I hope you guys got a lot out of this. I know I did. I'm going to have to like listen to it multiple times, take notes. Share. Um, I have a journey forward Facebook group that um, is, I do daily videos twice a day. I do a morning meditation and I do afternoon mindfulness tools at six o'clock. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. Four days a week. I do those two videos twice. I go on live twice on Wednesdays and Sundays. I do an extended 30 minute meditation. And then on Saturdays, I'm doing a live Q and a, because I just, you know, kind of in what you're doing now, I'm doing on a daily basis of showing up because people need this stuff more than ever right now. Right. They do. Well, thank you for being a great resource. And what's your Facebook journey forward, right? And that's forward with the Jory Rose is the Facebook group. And you can just find me at Jory Rose and it'll, I I always post about it. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And as I've been saying, stay healthy, (laughs) stay safe and stay sane. Perfect. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Power Mom Minute Podcast. Your support means the absolute world to me. You can find the show notes for the episode and other goodies over at powermomminute.com. 
And if you enjoyed this episode or have gotten value from the podcast, I'd be so grateful if you could head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review so that we can reach and empower more moms all over the world together. Each week I will be reading some of those reviews on air. So stay tuned and you might just hear yours. Thank you so much again, beautiful mamas, and I'll see you here next time.